software architecture addresses the challenge of communicating and navigating large and complex systems to stakeholders, both technical and non-technical. Over the years, software architecture has gone in and out of fashion. Today, we discuss why software architecture is important, what it means to have software architecture, and how to properly structure teams and incorporate architecture. Today's show is guest-hosted by David Curry. David sits down with Simon Brown to discuss the importance of having a common language for software systems. Simon is an independent consultant specializing in software architecture. He's the author of Software Architecture for Developers and the founder of Structurizer. If you're interested in hosting a show yourself, like David, who is guest-hosting the show, it's his second show he's guest-hosted, check out softwareengineeringdaily.com slash host, or you can email jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com, that's me, to find out more about hosting a show. We'd like to get more external voices and turn Software Engineering Daily into more of a media channel with different voices, different types of content, and I'd love to hear your ideas. So send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Simon is an independent consultant specializing in software architecture. He is the author of Software Architecture for Developers and founder of Structurizer. Simon, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, David. Just so we can kind of set the frame uh, about software architecture, can you tell me, um, from your perspective, what is software architecture? I guess software architecture means so many different things to, to so many different people. From from my perspective, it's it's about a couple of things, really. It's about the structure of what you're building. So if you have a software system, uh, you can break it down into modules or components or services or subsystems. So it's about structure and builder blocks and, and relationships. And it's mm-hmm. also about the significant decisions. Uh, and this is something that Grady Booch talks about a lot. So Imagine you have a set of requirements. Uh, you're asked to build a software system. You have to go make, make a bunch of significant decisions. And, and really, it's that collection of, de- of, of decisions uh, that, that is also included in architecture. Yeah, so that's that's a good uh, broad overview of, um, of some of the things we will discuss today. Specifically, what problems uh, does software architecture address when, when, when we look at those separate components and breaking things down? Like, um, what are we trying to, to address with uh, the, 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 the model of software architecture? I guess the main one is just chaos and, and avoiding chaos. I'm sure you've, you've, you've probably seen this just, um, yourself. You uh, go and see what a team is doing. And if, if that team doesn't have any uh, kind of obvious technical leadership... And, and therefore obvious software architecture. The systems they can be building often seem like, you know, big balls of mud or they're just horribly structured. They're not hard. Uh, they're, sorry, they're, they're not easy to maintain. You know, they're hard to deploy. They've got security issues, performance issues, that sort of stuff. So I guess it's, it, it, you know, in a nutshell, architecture for me, when we apply it to a team perspective, is about introducing technical leadership and avoiding chaos. Basically, so we create software systems and software projects that work. Yeah. So within that, we're we're looking at um, it, better performance, uh, better security. I guess structuring um, projects so that they they can be easier maintained. Are there other common software architecture um, 
problems. I guess if we think about software architect, poorly, poorly architected software, what may be some of the other problems that, that exist in that? In terms of uh, code bases, I guess uh, a lot of the problems you see come down to uh, poor structure. It's it's funny, we, we often have this discussion at the moment uh, whenever we talk about microservices versus monoliths. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've I've been quoted saying that if if people can't build modular you know well structured monoliths properly then they've got no hope of doing microservices, and That's and right. there's yeah there's there's uh, there's definitely some truth in that because in order to to create a you know a highly modular well structured monolith you do need to do some work around decomposition, and you do need to do some work around design thinking to figure out where your boundaries are. You know what sort of stuff you, you're going to encapsulate, what sort of uh, things you want to make publicly accessible in your code base, and, and I often see people kind of skipping that step, and they just charge headlong into a, a software system. You know, let's imagine we're building a stereotypical web app. They open up the books, they find a oh, layered architecture. That sounds like something we should do, and they just you know charge headlong into a layered architecture, keep all their classes public, and and that's fine to start with, of course. But then after a few months or a few years, you end up getting this horrible spaghetti code system because there's just no integrity there, no structure. So the, I, I think that the structural, the, the, the structural issues are, are probably one of the most common ones I see. And, and I guess they're the easiest, easiest to spot as well in many ways. That makes me think about like, um, you know, you you start on a project, everybody's pretty excited. Um, you may jot down some some feature, you know, requirements or specifications, and then everybody sort of jumps right in without really thinking about the overall direction and considerations to, you Indeed, know, integration yeah. of other systems and things. So yeah, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. What's interesting here is if you if you go back twenty years, we used to have dedicated people called software architects who would do that job, and then Agile came around and. A lot of teams dropped that kind of ivory tower dictatorship approach, which, which is is a good thing. You know, that's that's not how we want our teams to be run. But mm-hmm. they often didn't replace the technical leadership role with anything, and I think that's to some degree anyway got us to where we are today. And I do see lots of teams who are just in chaos. I see lots of teams who uh, you know don't have explicit people looking after the architecture. You know whether that's one or many people. So yeah, it's 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 a it's a slippery slope, unfortunately. So are you saying that uh, modern teams? It's better for modern teams not to have a specific architect role, and uh, would the developers play that role in architecture? So I, I would I I would say uh, almost the total opposite. So f- from my perspective, uh, every software team needs technical leadership. So that's that's the first easy thing we can we can talk about. Um, mm-hmm. But but more fundamentally, if you look at how that technical leadership role is kind of implemented and done on on project teams, I think explicitly having the role is important. So you know, making sure there are one or more people that that are explicitly doing that role, and it can be one or more people. I think most teams, to be honest, work better when it is just a single person kind of taking that leadership role. Um, but if you have a, a team of you know, more experienced people, they've worked together before, they know each other, then you can start to do pair architecting and kind of sharing the role out amongst uh, the rest of the development team. But that's not something I see working well a lot, to be honest. So for for a developer who's focused on, say, one uh, aspect or one one component of the system, what can he or she do to think and work more architecturally? 
That's a really interesting question. The easiest way is just to work with the architect. Um, I'm I'm a big fan of of making the role collaborative and dragging people into architecture discussions where necessary. And and of course, if, if you have a large enough system, um, you're not going to be the expert on all parts of that system. So it is often useful to get other people along with you into meetings and discussions and stuff. Uh, but also making the architecture. No, so so you know, flip flip the question around. If if I'm an architect, how can I help my developers become more architecturally aware? Um, making a lot of the architectural information available is a really simple thing to do, and also explaining the rationale for those significant decisions. So you know, don't just you know use X version of this framework. Let's let's explain why. You know, maybe there's some specific principles that we want to adopt, or some specific, uh, specific constraints that we have, for example, around support and maintenance or costs. So yeah, it's it's really about opening up that information stream. So I, I read a blog post of yours uh, from 2016 titled Agile Software Architecture Documentation. Uh, you also talk about why there's no conflict between agile and architecture in your book. Um, how does software architecture fit into agile, into the agile environment? You've got a couple of ways of looking at uh, architecture within agile environments. If you if you look at most of the definitions of agile, they all tend to revolve around uh, embracing change and moving fast and releasing often uh, and that sort of stuff. So from a from a process perspective, we want to really create an architecture that supports and allows teams to move fast. And for me, that's where the whole structure thing comes back into play again. So if you if you're looking for agility in your team, if you're looking for agility in your software system. You tend to find that systems that are well structured tend to have more agility. In other words, they're they're easier to change, and that's why we're seeing lots of um, lots of discussion at the moment around, around microservices architectures. Because of course, if you have all of these small independent things, then you can change these small independent things separately and and individually. So uh, a microservices architecture, by definition, gives you lots of agility. There are trade offs, of course. Uh, so that's that's kind of one aspect. It's the if you want to move fast, make sure you create an architecture that allows you to move fast. And, and that's the design thinking, decomposition. That's something that you have to think about. You don't get that for free, unfortunately. And and in terms of the uh, the, the kind of process perspective, you know, 20 years ago, we were doing lots of wall-to-wall projects and it was all about upfront design and fixing all of the design decisions up front. And, and then we kind of flipped to the other extreme where people were saying, hey, we can just you know evolve the architecture, do emergent design, and, and therefore we don't need to do any upfront thinking. That's also foolish. So there's a there's a nice happy midpoint in the middle somewhere. And 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 the obvious question here is, well, how much upfront design should you do? And, and, and for me, the answer is very simply just enough. Which is a fantastic mantra, right? But it's a completely useless piece of advice. So when I talk about doing just enough upfront design, and this is specifically applicable to agile teams, of course, if I'm starting out with a, a blank sheet of paper and I'm designing a software system, I want to do enough upfront thinking, either individually or you know as a pair, as a team, whatever, to understand the significant structural elements uh, and in real terms, for me, this means going down to doing component level design or, or, or maybe service level design if you're doing microservices, uh, being able to communicate those ideas and that architectural intent with the rest of your team. And that's where a, a good set of simple diagrams come into play. And it's also about de-risking the build. So essentially, this is about um, identifying and mitigating your highest priority risks and then doing some concrete experiments to you know prove out that stuff if necessary. So that that's 
in a nutshell how architecture and, and, and agile fit together from my perspective anyway So when you're starting out, let's say you're starting out on a new uh, project in an, in an agile in an agile team, um, and you want to you're creating your architecture. How far ahead are you thinking, or the decisions that go into the current architecture for this particular sprint? How far ahead are you thinking, uh, and how much of that sort of scale thought of scalability goes into the current design or the current architecture because i know yeah. we're, we're talking about just enough but i guess it's a balance between how much you're putting forth with the right. thought that this is the direction we're going in yeah and it's it's also tricky of course because you, you never quite know how something's going to evolve so imagine you're in a startup and and you're building some software as a service product because you're a startup and you probably have no money you probably want to get something out there quickly. So this is the whole, you know, minimum minimum viable product thing. That minimum viable product is probably not going to scale for a million concurrent users. So that, you know, that that's one extreme. The other extreme is you say, right, I, I know my startup's going to be super successful, so I want to put scalability in for a million concurrent users in right at the start. There's a lot of engineering effort in doing that, isn't there? Yeah, that's right. And, and potentially a lot of, you know, wasteful cost and effort if your startup fails so that that's one of the big problems that, that we we kind of talk about it's it, it's not having that crystal ball to see far enough into the future so this is where you need to start using uh design tricks and tactics and architectural principles to to build in you know f- flexibility into architecture so that you, you know that parts of your architecture can change if you want to and again this is something that, that microservices architectures are relatively good at of course uh, in terms of how far we're looking into the future, then I actually had this uh, same discussion with a, a team I worked with a few weeks ago, and we we were talking about you know if if you're starting up uh, from scratch on an agile project, you only really have the requirements of that sprint to work with, and and I kind of questioned that, and, and I said, well, somebody somewhere must have you know the full set of requirements. I'm going to use full set in, in air quotes here. You know, the, the full set of requirements, even at a high level or the business strategy or, you know, something about what this thing is going to need to do in the future, because they've obviously taken the requirements um, that, that make up the sprint. You know, it, it, it's a subset of the full backlog, essentially. So my, my answer was very simply the product owners and the business strategy people and, you know, the, the business sponsors and, and ultimately the people with the vision for this system need to have some involvement early. Or, or vice versa, of course, the you know the architecture people that the the people designing the software need to have some early involvement with those with those sponsors, mm-hmm. uh, so that so that they have a general idea of where the product's going to go. And I think a lot of teams don't do that. They seem to be focused, you know, very much in a kind of sprint sandbox, and that's fine. But I think you do need some forward-looking vision as well. Again, I think when you were talking earlier about having a dedicated uh, kind of technical lead, this is probably another good good job function for them to um, course you know correspond with uh, the the other stakeholders as well as be um, an expert on the sort of software engineering tips and tricks you would you would implement to think think for the future within the current uh, yes, the current yeah. sprint. 
It's interesting. I've 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 seen some resistance uh, from some teams because they don't like the term software architect. So um, Scott Ambler, I think it is, has a, a another really nice name for this, and and he calls it an architecture owner. And sometimes you know just reframing the architecture role in terms of an architecture owner is a is a really really simple trick because then you've got the architecture owner working alongside say the product owner, uh, and these you know these people. Um, mm-hmm. Whether it's two people, one person, you know, group of people are, are together looking at the vision of uh, where this thing is going. And so, I want to switch gears just a little bit. Talk about your um, C4 model. Uh, so, you're the creator of the C4 architecture model. What is the C4 model, and what problem does it solve? So, one of the things I do a lot with uh, teams around the world is is I do software architecture workshops and carters and. I've been running these for about, for about 10 years now. And, and the premise is very, very simple. You get a group of people together, you break them up into smaller groups of, say, two to four people, and you give them a two-page handout of requirements. And you say, right, what I'd like you to do in your groups is, is to go away and design a software solution for these requirements and draw some pictures to somehow visualize your architecture. And I give the groups about one and a half hours to do this. And it's a really, really simple set of requirements. The, the actual design is is super simple. The hardest thing about the whole exercise is actually visualizing the solution. And I've got, you know, 15 or 20 gigabytes of photos on my laptop of the various different types of diagrams that people have tried to draw to describe their solutions. And they're just crazy. Literally every type of diagram you could possibly imagine, I've probably got photos of somewhere. We have UML, of course, in the industry. Um, I, I poll people at conferences and workshops around the world uh, and and. And I kind of asked them, you know, who's using UML here? And UML is definitely on the, on the decline. I'm I'm seeing a lot more teams now who don't use UML uh, at all within their teams. And in fact, I've I've met a lot of people recently who who just plain don't know UML. So of course, in these in these diagrams I get during my workshops, there's very very little UML. In fact, even even with teams who claim they do use UML uh, in their day to day jobs, uh, these same teams typically don't draw UML architecture pictures. So my C4 model is is basically, this is a very long-winded way of answering the question, by the way, the, the, the C4 model is, is basically a very simple set of hierarchical diagrams to describe a static structure, in other words, software architecture. Uh, so imagine you're building a, a system. A simple way to explain that system to people is to, is to have a, a set of hierarchical diagrams, much like a set of Google Maps. So Picture one is called a system context diagram. And basically what you do is you draw a box in the center that represents your system. And you draw a bunch of other boxes around it. And these boxes represent the people, the users, the actors, personas uh, who interact with your system and the other systems that your system interacts with. So really it's just a, a very, very simple high-level map. If you were to have a set of Google Maps, basically what you do is you'd want to kind of zoom in. You want to do the pinch to zoom in movement. Uh, onto that system to kind of see what's inside it. So once you zoom into the system boundary, you get down to level two. Uh, and this is what I call containers. So this is a, a, a containers diagram. And what I mean by container, and it, it's a little bit unfortunate that Docker became popular, to be honest, because when I say container, I'm not referring to a Docker container. But what I mean by a container is basically something like an application uh, that you know runs your code or a data store like a database or a file system or something like this. So the, the container diagram basically shows applications and data stores. So, you know, maybe it shows a mobile app talking to a web app talking to a database. 
nice and high level, some uh, simple text about responsibilities on there, some tech, to, some tech choices and protocols. If we want to know more about, say, the internals of the web application, we do the pinch to zoom in movement once again, and we get to see inside it. And, and then you come up with the component diagram for a particular container. And this really show, shows you the internal structure of the thing that you're building in terms of components. So you, you kind of zoom into a component and then you see the code inside it. So it's it's a very simple set of hierarchical diagrams to describe static structure, essentially. And and so I imagine that each of these diagrams can communicate the same project to, to different stakeholders of different yes. technical abilities. Yeah, indeed. So the, the context diagram is, is very useful for all audiences because it, it doesn't really have any technology on there. So it's good for business sponsors, product owners, developers, testers, operations, and so on. The container diagram... It's got a bit more technical stuff on there, so it's good developers and architects. It's also useful for operational and support stuff. You know, here's the stuff that you need to look after. Don't worry about what's inside it. And then, of course, as you go deeper, uh, components and classes and code, uh, that's really targeted much more at developers. So why is having uh, this type of document documentation important? The way that I like to think about this sort of documentation is that it's a way to help developers uh, explore and navigate large and complex software systems. So whenever I go and see organizations around the world, most of them, unfortunately, um, don't have much documentation about their software systems. And this kind of comes back to the agility thing again. So imagine you have a software system and you get this big change request in or this new feature that needs to be added and you need to do some architecture refactoring. People often say that architecture refactoring is quite tricky because you never quite know what you're changing. And and my view is that architecture refactoring shouldn't be tricky at all because it's just a simple transformation. The thing that complicates architecture refactoring is that uh, most teams, I think, don't have a good view of what their starting point is. And that's really where this documentation comes back into play. So, you know, it's a nice... Uh, high-level way to think about a software system and the structures in the software system. And it allows you to do things like architectural improvements or look for change impacts and that sort of thing. Is part of your goal with the the C4 model to make uh, kind of an industry standard for (laughs) documentation? Um, I've been asked this question a few times and I'm not entirely sure about industry standard, but I, I certainly do want to improve the way that people, you know, talk about, describe and, and visualize uh, their software systems. Um, sure. I think I think it's a bit too early to to kind of go the industry standard route yet. Um, but a lot of people do find it very very useful because it's just very very clean, very simple. So documentation isn't uh, you know the most desirable task for developers. Um, <laughs> no. You know why? From your perspective, why is there resistance to creating documentation? Uh, it's just boring. <laughs> Basically, yep. it's boring yeah. and it <laughs> gets out of date. People, yeah. <laughs> It's the honest answer, isn't it? In in terms of software documentations, uh, again, if you go back like 10 or 20 years, you used to see teams building lots of uh, software architecture documentation, SADs they were often called because SAD, that's how it makes you feel. And these things these things typically had good content in them, but the, the implementation and presentation wasn't ideal. You know, sometimes these documents were hundreds and hundreds of pages. So one of the things I, I, I kind of encourage teams to do is, is to write documentation, uh, but keep it nice and lean and lightweight, you know, a, a small number of pages versus hundreds. And the analogy I use here is like a travel guidebook. 
So imagine you're going on vacation somewhere, you, you you know run through the airport, you pick up a travel guide, but for your destination, it's got a bunch of maps in the back somewhere. The maps help you navigate an unfamiliar environment. That's all the diagrams do, of course. And it's got information about um, sites and points of interest and history and culture and all the practical stuff. And that's a really nice, uh, simple way to think about software documentation. You know, apply those same uh, sort of um sections to your to your documentation essentially and then you can make it more exciting uh, from a, a technical perspective by not using word and sharepoint but by using things like markdown and ascii doc so a, a common complaint of documentation tends to be the upkeep of it um, how can teams efficiently keep their architecture documentation up to date yeah you've you've got you've got a couple of options i, I guess from a from a process perspective it, it's 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 no more complex than you know if you have a definition of done for your tasks or your features or or whatever it is, uh, you add a line to the bottom of that definition of done that says, "Have you updated the architecture documentation?" And then it's just a, a really short you know maybe zero minute task you know ten minutes thirty minutes whatever to 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 update the documentation for the small part of the system that you've just touched. From a tooling perspective, uh, one of the things. Uh, I've created is is a a set of tooling uh, around the C4 model called Structurizer. It's a kind of part open source, part commercial thing. But one of the things Structurizer lets you do is it it lets you create architecture models using code. And and one of the things you can do, of course, is you can plug this whole mechanism into your build environment. And then when these these little programs, essentially, uh, that you're writing, when these programs run, uh, they have the ability to kind of scrape information from your live code base and use that as a way to update diagrams and documentation as well. So again, there's a there's a bunch of um, techniques and tools and approaches there. So that's so you are the founder of the product Structurizer. Is that what Structurizer does? Yeah. So uh, Structurizer is a, a collection of tooling that helps you uh, visualize, document, and explore your software architecture. It's um, it's kind of part open source, part commercial. So the open source thing uh, currently consists of two open source libraries, one for Java, one for C Sharp. And these are really small class libraries that implement the C4 model. Um, are you familiar with things like plant UML and web sequence diagrams where you, you write yeah. text to create diagrams? Yeah, so it's the same kind of thing. So what you're doing here is you're using text to create your architecture diagrams, but the text you're writing is actually Java code. So if if you were to look inside the uh, the structurizer for Java open source library, there are basically a bunch of classes in there representing people, software systems, containers, components, and all you do is you kind of create instances of these things and you wire them together. So you're you're really re- recreating a, a a kind of simple model of your software system, and there are also some component finder things in there that you can point at a at a code base and you can tell it to go and find components of, of various types. So that's that's kind of the open source thing, and then um, I built a, a software as a service uh, called Structurizer, um, and basically that's a, a set of uh, tooling that visualizes these models as web-based diagrams. Essentially, there's also a, a, a free plan that people can use as well. Can the result of running Structurizer against your code help you improve the architecture in any way? Yeah, definitely. So uh, one of the the features I built into the the Structurizer software as a service is a, is a set of explorations. It's a set of um, uh, JavaScript D three visualizations essentially that give you different perspectives onto your model. And I've I've noticed this uh, even with 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 my own software. You know, once once you have a model of your software system and that model is created uh, automatically from the code, 
you can start to look at the model and analyze the model to find relationships and things that don't make sense. A really simple example is if you take any, say, Java or C-sharp code base, um, if you were to do a query upon that code base to say, I would like to find all of the public types that are only used once, right? That's a really, really simple query that can help you go and identify classes that should be made more restrictive. So, you know, package protected or private or internal in C-sharp. So even things like this, you know, having a model of your software system, uh, being able to query it in different ways can, can kind of help you improve your architecture, which can hopefully eventually lead to a much, much better, well-structured architecture. So what are, are there any other languages outside of Java? And I believe you said uh, C-sharp that, or .NET that um, Structurizer supports? Uh, so at, at the moment, um, the the client libraries I've created are Java and C-sharp. Um, I think someone's building a Kotlin wrapper on top of the Java version. I think someone else okay. is building a Groovy kind of DSL wrapper on top of the Java version. And a friend of mine is starting a Python version. Uh, but that's it at the moment. So people can surely uh, participate in the open source um, part of the product, creating wrappers for different languages. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, and I've I've actually got some um, some some users who have a software system written in it's either C or C plus plus, and what they've actually done is they've they've built some component finder code in Java for the Java version of the library that basically passes C or C plus plus. So again, there are some some other opportunities here. Can you talk a little bit more about uh, Structurizer's documentation visualization component? So the the visualization component um, basically in the in the in the in the client library, what you do is you you create your model and then you create a bunch of views that map onto the C4 diagram. So the system context diagram, the container diagram, the component diagram, uh, and what the Structurizer software as a service does is it basically uh, creates those pictures for you. There's a set of boxes and lines diagrams. Um, very simple, very constrained notation. You can change the shapes and the colors and the sizes of the fonts and stuff, but it, it's, a, it's a very, very constrained notation. So that that's essentially it for the visualization part. It's it's um it's worth mentioning that in the open source libraries, uh, you can also export the views that you create into formats like Plant UML. So so you're not tied into using the software as a service. And and in terms of the the documentation. Um, Basically, what you do is you you add Markdown or ASCII doc content to the software architecture model that, that you create in the client library, and then the Structurizer software as a service will render that for you. And the nice thing about having the documentation and the diagrams all in one place is it's very easy to embed the live diagrams in the in the resulting HTML pages. So again, all of this stuff lives together, and it all you know stays up to date at, at the same rate. So what's the looking back at our conversation about? Um, at the agile, um, agile teams, um, and, and architecture, what's the ideal way of integrating structurizer into the software development lifecycle of say an agile methodology? What I, what I would tend to do and really my personal preference for all of this is I, I would start out doing architecture and design on a, on a whiteboard or a large piece of paper. And the reason I do that is because it's just a, a much bigger space. You know, it's much easier to do collaborative architecture, pair, pair architecture on a whiteboard. Uh, it's also easy to, you know, erase whiteboards and change your mind and, and all that sort of stuff. So I definitely use a whiteboard for the early stages of doing architecture design. And then when I had some code, I would start using uh, tools like Structurizer to, to start formalizing uh, those visualizations and that documentation. I see. You can also use Structurizer up front, but it's, 
you know, I, I don't generally do that. Yeah, it's it's a lot easier if you can kind of jot stuff down and erase and yeah, kind of exactly. wrap your mind yeah. around what you want to do. Yeah. So how, uh, looking at the future, how will software architecture change, say, over the next five to 10 years from your from your perspective? Oh, that's an interesting question. I, I think I think it might come back into fashion again. <laughs> um, like, like all things, it, it's, it becomes a cycle. Yeah, yeah, indeed. So, you know, if, if, if I look back, even even maybe 10 years, I, I saw a lot of resistance uh, against architecture because it was seen as this horrible ivory tower thing, you know, it was very dictatorship driven, you know, enforcing guidelines and principles and constraining what people could do. And then Agile came along and kind of killed all that stuff. And I think people have realized that, that teams do need technical leadership. And I think that's why there's a, a resurgence in, you know, people wanting to think more seriously about architecture. Um, whether, you know, my C4 standard becomes the de facto way to do architecture, who knows? Maybe there's a bunch of other approaches that, that might come up in the future. I think one of the things we do need to do as 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 an industry is really create a common vocabulary. And that's one of the things the C4 model tries to do. So you've probably seen this yourself. You know, you go and sit with the team and you see them having a discussion. They'll use words like component in very, very different ways. So I think one of the things we need to do as an industry is figure out what our vocabulary is. So that's something I'd like to see happen in the next five to 10 years. And I think we may also see people starting to use some of the tooling that they perhaps used to use a while ago. Uh, so things like modeling tools have completely gone out of fashion, but there's definitely some value in having a model of your software architecture because you can do things like query and ask it questions and stuff. Uh, and also things like static analysis tools never really took off as much as they should have done. So I'd I, I, I certainly like to see those sorts of things uh, taking much more importance. And from a from a process perspective, I'd, I'd like to see, you know, the software architecture role becoming much more formalized. It's funny, yeah. whenever you go, you, you go to your organizations and you say, what do your developers do? They can tell you. You ask them, what does your scrum master do? They can tell you. You ask them, what does your architects do? And they're kind of stumped. So again, there's, there's no kind of single formal definition of architecture as well. And, and maybe that's something we need to do in the next five to 10 years. Yeah, one of the things that's been that I've always uh, wanted, to, wanted to see is just sort of some, some collection of architecture documentation for different for solving different problems. Um, it's, you know, a lot of times it's a lot of trial and error between different teams and things. It's a lot of things are, are sort of open source or open information, but it doesn't seem that um, system planning is, is one of those. And I, I believe it will be extremely helpful for, you know, different teams to look at the way people have solved problems from an architectural standpoint and maybe use some of those elements into their own projects. And also having a, 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 a standardized is probably the, the, the wrong word, but a, a more or less consistent way of doing this as well. You know, you, you often see people documenting their systems, but they're, they're documenting them in very, very different ways, mm-hmm. which, which adds a, an extra layer of complexity in, in understanding what people are doing, of course, and, and, and the problems that they're solving. Right now, there's there's so many cloud service options out there and cloud adoption rates continue to grow. Do you see this having an effect on the future of architecture? Uh, yes, definitely. I mean, you, you can kind of see this already through things like microservices and Docker and also the new cloud native uh, buzzword that people are throwing around, you know, building your apps so that, so that they are ready for the cloud in, uh, in air quotes. So, yeah, there's a... Uh, 
that's definitely having an impact because you know if you're if you're creating cloud native applications you can't rely on persisting stuff to local disk anymore because your you know server instance your web app instance might be moved at runtime uh, you have to do things like log aggregation across many servers so yeah there's there's definitely uh, you know clouds having an, an impact in the things we do as architects these days i'd also like to see platform as a service become more popular as well well simon it's been a pleasure speaking with you today i really appreciate you coming on the show and thanks for being a guest no problem at all thank you